When people think of what a leader is, they automatically think of a man. So I think we need to do more to um, make room for women at the table and encourage women to take leadership roles so that a woman's face is the face that you know your two-year-old daughter thinks of when they think of what a leader is or who a leader is. Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. In this episode of Of Counsel, we're joined with Jacqueline Horvath. Jacqueline is a founding partner of Spark LLP in Toronto and the youngest person ever to be elected bencher to the Law Society of Ontario. After leaving one of Canada's best litigation firms, she now advances her practice with a unique and effective approach to business law and commercial litigation. She has appeared before all levels of court in Ontario and is an active member of the legal community with particular interest in the training and mentorship of lawyers. Join us as Jacqueline discusses the lessons she has learned as Ontario's youngest ever elected bencher, the initiatives she has contributed towards during her terms, and advice for younger lawyers wishing to follow a similar path of excellence on this episode of Of Counsel. So today I'm with uh, Jacqueline Horvat. Jacqueline uh, does many things, but we're going to start off with what started it all, and that is commercial litigation. You uh, represent clients in a wide variety of corporate commercial disputes. So what exactly does that entail? Because when I went to law school, I thought, I'm going to be a corporate litigator, and then I never quite understood what that meant, and I somehow got lost, and now I'm a criminal defense lawyer. But what exactly does a corporate commercial litigator do? So, no, it's really just about uh, about corporations and shareholders fighting over money. That's basically what I do on a daily basis. Um, we, I also, I shouldn't say dabble because that might um, trigger an investigation by the Law Society into my <laughs> practice, but I will occasionally take on cases for my clients that may involve property disputes or... Um, or fighting over some sort of asset or some machinery or something like that. But right. generally, it's just a fight over money. So That's on that, though, so if you're fighting over money, like to me, then that always, and maybe it is often the case, just a cost-benefit analysis of how much is this going to cost. Um, unlike family or immigration or criminal where there's other principles at play, do you ever get clients who just at a principle for whatever reason, it's more than about money, even in commercial situations? Yeah, so generally it's it's just about money. There are no emotions involved, which is how I prefer to keep things. But every once in a while we'll have a client come in and say, it's the principle of the matter. And that's when we ask for the fifty or $75,000 retainer because we know we know that you know we're going to eat up. A, they're going to eat up a lot of fees. We're going to spend a lot of time in court fighting over something that has a business solution. Um, but when emotions get involved, uh, it clouds the party's perspective. So basically, what what I try to do is find the best business decision for my clients. I enjoy being in court. 
But unfortunately, in commercial litigation, just the way it's evolved, even in, during my career, um, I find myself spending less and less time in court. Um, and it's more about finding um, innovative and uh, creative business solutions for the parties. Right. And, and recently, um, you've um, started up your own um, practice um, with some partners. And now you're uh, a business person yourself. Do you find that some of the lessons you've learned over the past five years or so are valuable to helping your clients make these decisions? I definitely see the cases through the lens of a business person now. Um, a lot of it is a cost-benefit analysis. You know, does it make sense to do a trial and spend a million dollars in legal fees when you're fighting over $500,000? Right. So now I see it through that lens and we we try or I try to push my clients to find the best business solution. And just recently I had a case where emotions were involved. There were two companies were fighting over um, over a greenhouse and emotions were running high. And at the end of the day, I was lucky to have an opposing counsel who saw the world the way I did, which was, let's find a business solution for these parties. And they ultimately ended up doing a joint venture together. So hopefully that stays uh, positive and happy and, and they don't come back to us to deal with the split up of the joint venture. But I do find myself doing that a lot more than, than heading straight to court. So what tips have you learned as a commercial litigator to try and persuade your clients to pursue what they're after in goals um, that I guess offers a different perspective than other commercial litigators. I, I talk to them now as a business person. We sit down and we do the cost-benefit analysis together. Mm -hmm. um, we, we talk about profits. We talk about maximizing profits. I, uh, listen, I've, I've probably lost out on thousands of dollars in legal fees mm -hmm. um, in helping clients resolve disputes earlier than, uh, than say, going to trial. But, uh, but if my clients are happy, I'm happy, and you know they send more work my way. So I think it all sort of makes it makes it up at the end of the day. Right. The value of those relationships continue. Sure. Right. Okay. So let's let's go to the beginning. How um, did you uh, get started in law? What motivated you to get into this in the first place? I I stumbled into becoming a lawyer. Um, I it's not something that I you know was a five year old playing with my Barbies and my Barbies <laughs> were lawyers. That wasn't the case. Um, I I was really really. I mean the truth of the matter is I was really good at math in high school. I didn't have to work hard at it, and I thought this is a great degree to pursue at university because I'm not going to have to work that hard. I, I didn't know what I wanted to do with that. Um, so I studied math for a couple of years, um, focusing on calculus of all things. And, um, and then I realized, oh no, am I going to be an actuary or a math professor? I didn't really know what else I could do with that, with that degree. So I just started talking to my professors. And one of them had a son who was a lawyer. And he said, you know what, you should write the LSAT. Just let's see what happens. And I did, and I did quite well. Um, I think because of that math background, the logic background. And so then I applied to law school. I got into law school. And I guess the rest is history. I sort of just, everything sort of fell into place after that. Right. Now you, as I understand it, you started um, articling at Bearskin Par. Um, and that was in Toronto. Yes. And from there, you ended up working 13 years of your life. 
as um, a lawyer with uh, Sats Strasberg. As they were then known, now they're known as Strasberg Sasso Sats. And that firm, um, as anyone who's familiar with class actions, is one of the leading um, class action firms, certainly in Canada, if not um, North America. You know, one thing that I've always wondered, what exactly is a class action? And what's the importance of class actions insofar as um, disputes? And what does it offer outside of your standard litigation? It's basically a redress for the masses. So um, Harvey Strasberg, who I worked with for a number of years, um, whenever somebody challenged him on, Isn't, aren't class actions just to make money for the lawyers? You know, his response was always, well, listen, if, if, a, if a bank is taking a penny from each of their account holders, why should the bank keep that penny when you total it? You know, if there's $5 million in total, why should they keep that? Why shouldn't that go back to the class or, um, or to a charity in a Cypre distribution? Mm-hmm. So it's about behavior modification um, it's about p- changing the corporate culture and and changing the behavior of the banks. You know, they shouldn't be taking that penny from everybody's account right. and keeping it. Have you seen that having a deterrent effect upon larger institutions, knowing that there's this possibility of a looming class action? Yeah, for sure. Over over the course of my career, um, the banks have changed their um, standard terms and conditions that I don't think anybody actually reads, mm-hmm. but they've definitely changed them. Um, to deal in response to class actions. And there have been a number of uh, Cypre distributions, charitable donations, Mm -hmm. as a result of these class actions that have benefited society as a whole and assisted access to justice in the province Mm -hmm. because of class actions. So what is particularly remarkable about you, Jacqueline, is um, you were elected as the youngest venture to the Law Society of Ontario. Um, in 2011, at the time, Law Society of Upper Canada, but now it's the Law Society of Ontario, and then re-elected again in 2015. Um, first of all, how does it feel, or how did it feel, um, being so, no, how does it feel? Because you're still quite relatively young compared to the benchers that are sitting, even though this is your second term. Yeah, so uh, in the last election, um, there were a number of, of Benchers elected on the younger side, mm-hmm. so around my around my vintage mm-hmm. and generation, um, which is nice. It's nice to have have to see you know people that look like me <laughs> around the halls of the law society. Um, but that must have been so intimidating when you're first going in there back in 2011. I mean, most people would have been 20 years your senior at the time. Uh, yeah, and it was. It was. So the first few days were a bit intimidating. I, I sort of sat back and watched and observed. Um, I was lucky in that I had um, Harvey Strasberg, was a former treasurer and still quite active at the Law Society. So I had him there to bounce questions and ideas off of. Um, and But I made friends fast. I, I'm not not necessarily shy. So I, I found people that I, I thought would be open to being a mentor to me at the Law Society, um, venture mentors. Mm-hmm. And um, I made sure I, I stalked them and was in their face and, um, and and sought their guidance and assistance. Are there one or two ventures in particular that were influential and helpful to you? Yeah, so looking back, um, definitely Linda Rothstein. Uh, she was a second-term venture at the time, and she was part of the governance reforms 
that happened um, in the term prior to uh, to me being elected. I think that assisted in me being elected because that those reforms opened up a number of, of spots, uh, venture spots. Um, so Linda was definitely somebody that I followed around and, and stalked, I think is a good word. <laughs> um, and then I also worked quite closely on, um, on the Articling Task Force, and we drafted a minority report together. Um, so Paul Shavis, the current treasurer, and mm. Peter Wardle. So I would say those three were, were quite, um, those three were, were all individuals and ventures who I looked up to and looked to for guidance. Is there anything um, that you're most proud of during your time? Yeah, I would say two things. Um, the first is the minority report mm-hmm. um, that took, you know, as people said at the time, that took a lot of balls. Tell us about it. Well, we were first, so Peter and I were first term benchers. Um, we were put on the articling task force. Paul Shavis was a second term bencher at the time. And um, so the articling task force was looking at what to do with the articling, um, with the licensing, basically, uh, the licensing program, uh, whether to change it, keep it the same, um, because there were a number of can- licensing candidates who could not find articling jobs. Mm-hmm. So in order to be called to the bar, you needed an articling job. So we had this group of candidates who was stuck in limbo because um, because they couldn't they couldn't find anybody to article under. So we were essentially letting the market dictate who was being called to the bar. Um, so we were studying this issue. It was also a crisis in 1970. When I think it was, and I'm, I, I'll get the number wrong, but um, it was a much smaller number than than it was in 2011. I think it was something like 10 candidates couldn't find articling jobs, and in 1970 they constituted this committee that looked and recommended abolishing articling. At the time, um, so we were looking at it again in 2011, and then um, we didn't agree with with bringing in the LPP. And continuing articling, um, what we were opposed to was having the two streams. So we thought they were unequal, unfair. Mm-hmm. We thought, you know, there's a group of candidates who are being paid to article, and then there's a group who are in in a program for eight months and not being paid. So we we found that fundamentally unfair. So we drafted our own report, and that was that was a huge learning experience. We had to present that report. Um, there was a big debate at convocation that was in 2012. Um, so I'm, and we we actually got a lot more support than we anticipated. Um, so we were pleased with that. Uh, May I ask when you were um, doing this task force, I I suspect some of that involved article. Um, I suspect some of that involved uh, interviewing uh, the articling students or, or wanting to be articling students in this crisis at the time. What were some of the things that you were hearing from these students? Yeah, so we did a road show as part, we <laughs> called it a road show as part of uh, the articling task force. We traveled the province, we went to the universities, mm-hmm. um, the law schools, we we met with the local law associations, we had, you know, we, we went up to Barrie and to Windsor and to London and had open calls, people, practitioners came in. Um, we heard a mix, I and mean, the students felt it was fundamentally unfair mm-hmm. that uh, the market was deciding who was being called to the bar. Um, but you know, it's as you know, I'm sure 
lawyers, it's hard to change lawyers. It's hard to change Very this legal so. system. Yes. Um, well, we've always done it this way was, was what we were hearing. And everybody, you know, I had such a great articling experience is what we heard from everybody. Mm-hmm. And, and I understand that. And I had a, a terrific articling experience, but it certainly didn't prepare me to be a sole practitioner mm-hmm. or a lawyer in a small firm, my articling experience. I articled at Bruskin and Parr, which is an intellectual property firm. So w- when I was done articling, I was ready to be an IP lawyer. I wasn't necessarily ready to be a lawyer on my own. Um, and part of the Law Society's mandate is to ensure competence um, for all lawyers, including new calls and new licensees. Mm-hmm. And so in our, in our view, um, and the view of many of the students, law school and articling wasn't necessarily preparing them to be lawyers. One of the things that uh, was different uh, in 2011 and around this time of the crisis was that uh, it moved away from a bar ads program. And I'm not sure of the year exactly, but when you and I were articling, it would be a more holistic training that the Law Society would offer with practitioners uh, who would come in and give um, an approach that maybe not left one in an ideal state to practice on their own, but at least gave them a perspective. Um, and what it seems to have happened um, is relying on articles to offer that training took that away. And was there some, uh, is this some of the the problems that you were just describing where, you know, as you finished your articles, you only knew how to be an IP lawyer and not having a broader perspective? And what, if anything, was the LPP going to contribute to that? So the LPP was um, created mm-hmm. and implemented to mimic the articling experience um, in a virtual environment. And we've had uh, a couple of studies done, and it seems that it's doing actually a very good job of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and people who have had LPP students, I've heard nothing but, we have not, mm-hmm. but people who have have told me that it, they've been nothing but positive experiences. So I, I'm, you know, I'm not necessarily opposed to the LPP, but mm-hmm. our, our point was we shouldn't have two systems, one being articling and one being LPP. Right. All the candidates should go through the same system. Right. And on bar ads, um, I did go through a truncated version of the bar ads, not mm-hmm. the full version that a lot of the people that came out to our roadshow talked about. That would happened, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were helpful. And I do remember things from from that from the you know, things that the practitioners told us what happens every day you've got to trust your gut if a, if mm-hmm. a client comes in and you think that they're going to be trouble listen to your gut I remember that from bar ads mm-hmm. so um, I you know I do think they were helpful um, but I I don't know the exact year but I think bar ads left us in the mid2000s mm-hmm. and that's when we moved to the licensing exams. So what do you see, you know, if, if it was up to you, because you're one of, what, 40 votes? Well, there's more than 40 votes. Right. We have former treasurers have votes as well. So you're one of many votes. One of 60-something, <laughs> 60 or so votes, yes. But if it were up to you, um, if you could design a plan that takes away this um, divergence of, of, of types of trainings and licensing of lawyer, what, what do you see as the ideal scenario for students who want to become lawyers? So in our minority report, and mm-hmm. it's it's online so anybody can, can look it up, um, we proposed having a short, I think it was a two-month course 
sort of like bar ads, but dealing with the business of law as well. Things like trust accounts mm-hmm. um, that all the, all the candidates would have to go through. And then you would write your two licensing exams and be, be called to the bar. Um, my thinking over the last few years have sh- has shifted a bit. I, uh, and I think I might be one of maybe three votes, so this will not not come to be in our lifetimes, probably. Um, I would move towards uh, licensing exams, but rigorous licensing exams, US style licensing exams. You get called to the bar if you practice as a sole practitioner or in a small firm of two or three or four people. I don't know the proper number we'd have to look at, mm-hmm. look at the evidence that we have. Um, if that was your choice of practice, you would have to complete a sole and small firm um, practice course mm-hmm. that deals with the business of law, that deals with trust accounts. Because going through this process of opening Spark with with my two partners, we had to learn all that. We 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 had no resources, and I'm sure you had to do the same. Of thing. course, yeah. You had to teach yourself how to do the business side of law because. I was never exposed to it over the last, um, over the course of my career or in law school. Right. Um, so we had to start fresh. And then presumably different um, refinements of expertise would require different licensing and different exams moving upwards or parallel or whatever the case may be. Sure. And I am a proponent of limited licensing. So mm-hmm. I, I think we should be moving towards, you know, you practice criminal law. You have a criminal lawyer's license, right? Right. Um, you know, I certainly don't. I used the word dabble earlier, but if somebody calls me with a criminal matter, I refer it out. Somebody calls me with a real estate matter, I refer it out. If somebody calls me with an estates litigation matter, I know I can't handle that, mm-hmm. um, so I refer it out. What's, and what's interesting, um, as you're saying this, um, I think what your perspective adds of, of great value to the benchers. Um, is there is what I see to be somewhat of a disconnect between um, more older lawyers who see the practice of law as something sweeping for everything that you can one day do a real estate file and then take a criminal file. And I think um, if you ask any younger generations, um, they realize that the world is one of hyper-specialization right now. It's not just about getting a hamburger. It's about getting hamburger that is prepared in a certain way, particularly in Toronto. And I take comfort that you take comfort in the idea that this sort of limited licensing is where it has to go. Um, what would that structure look like if if uh, your three became 30, which I don't know, I'm a bit more optimistic about that, uh, but if your three became 30 votes, um, what do you see as something that we could emulate towards to make sure that the public gets the best representation possible? I, um, you're right, It might we might be able to increase the number of votes. I, I don't see it happening in the next five or 10 years, but mm-hmm. we could roll it out over 10 or 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it would look like um, exams for all. Mm-hmm. And then if you're specializing in criminal or real estate or commercial litigation, you take specified CPD courses every year in that area. And you would have to do that and maybe even requalify every number so many years. Mm-hmm. Um, the staff at the Law Society, if they listen to this, will tell me how expensive <laughs> all of this will be. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, that would be my perfect world. 
Right. And I think we should be, I think we should have requalification, right. you know, for a driver's license. When you're 80, you have to go and, and do a driver's exam. Sure. Well, even um, if we look to parallels within medicine, I mean, you can't just be a, a cardiac, a, a cardiac surgeon, right? You, you have to work through the ranks. And um, despite the cost, I mean, one way of looking at it is that as lawyers progress and become you know, C1 criminal, C2, C3, the C3 criminal license may be very expensive to obtain, but then you have a very select amount of people who can actually do that work who can charge accordingly. And so there may be some offsetting there. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, wishful thinking. Well, <laughs> and but you're right. And it, it might even involve, um, you know, getting certain qualifications might involve training under somebody for a certain number of years and then you're free to do it on your own. I mean, I don't, I don't have it all mapped out yet. I'll let you know when I do. <laughs> um, maybe we can do it now. We can just brainstorm. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's right. Um, but it, that would be my perfect world. Right. And uh, what are some of the other um, perspectives that you think um, having a younger venture has added to the dialogue of, of the Law Society or your term? I think one thing is, um, I think younger benchers, mm -hmm. younger lawyers practice differently than people who have been practicing for 30 or 40 years do. Give some examples of that. So one thing is, uh, in some of my cases, I have, I have senior lawyers mm -hmm. who don't use email. Right. Um, I mean, that's a, that's a silly little thing, but I, I think that we should have a technological competence in our rules of professional conduct. Yeah, it sounds um, wild, but, you know, to me, uh, and, and sometimes it's amazing that people are actually proud that they don't want to, right? right? That it's like, I don't actually use email as if, you know, illiteracy is something to be proud of. And uh, I just don't understand it, but I think that's a great suggestion. And the other thing is, is law firm culture. Mm -hmm. um, we, so we here at Spark have a, we're trying to do things a little bit differently. We, we have an associate that we hired um, almost a year ago, and she has no billable hour targets. We're basing her bonus on a number of factors. Part of it is, I mean, if she builds zero hours for the year, that would be a problem. <laughs> but um, part of it is her building her own reputation mm -hmm. in the legal community, what she's done to assist with the firm's reputation, what she's done to assist the firm in marketing and, and things like that. So all of those factors go into her bonus. Right. Um, and we're just, we're trying to develop a more relaxed culture. So when I say things like this to my venture, some of my venture colleagues, they, they look at me very confused and dazed and confused mm -hmm. and they just can't seem to connect with that, unfortunately. But what I can see, our listeners can't because they're they don't can't see, but what I can see is it seems to be working quite well. We're sitting now in a beautiful new office that you and your partners have just started, and um, it sounds like um, your perspective on not just how to approach business law, but just in the way it's all implemented, is very refreshing. Um, and I I love the name, by the way. Tell me about what drove you and your partners to start this, and where do you see yourself going in the next five years? So we it, again, it all kind of fell fell into place. Um, this wasn't a plan that I was working on for years. I, um, I, I gave my notice at, uh, at my old firm without really having a plan. I just knew that it was time to do something a little bit differently. I wasn't sure what that meant. 
Um, and then I um, I had worked with Jeff Rosecat on, a, we did a trial together in 2009 as co-counsel. Mm-hmm. We worked really well together. We stayed in touch. Um, and I, I decided that Jeff and I, with the urging of Linda Rossi, <laughs> should uh, should start our own firm. So I convinced uh, I convinced Jeff that he should leave his practice at, at Gardner Roberts, and we should try to do something a little bit different. Why not? Was our view. Um, mm-hmm. So over a number of lunches and drinks, um, alcohol fueled plans were created to to start Spark. Mm-hmm. And um, to start Spark Town, which is this co-working space that we've we've now opened, which is beautiful, by the way. We're sitting Thank here you, now in the, in the Lionel Hutz room. What a great name! Um, and it's yeah, it's quite impressive. Um, so, what do you see? Uh, where do you see Spark um, at in five years from now with you and your partners? I think we'll get. Um, I th- we're hoping to get a little bit bigger. We're hoping to grow. We don't want to grow too big. We want to make sure we keep quality people working with us and in the space with us. Um, I think we'll stay a small boutique business minded firm. Um, and we're hoping we're hoping to to keep to keep up a different attitude and and not fall into the traditional sort of law firm culture. Right. Well, like I said, it's very refreshing to come here. Just as you come in, you, right away you can sense the culture is different and uh, more relaxed, but at the same time, effective. And I think you're going to have many great things coming. So what is it? You know, you've got all these, you're a bencher, you've got Spark going. Um, what is it that motivates you? Are you drinking like 17 coffees a day? Or? I drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> um, I do. I drink coffee all day long, uh, caffeinated coffee. Um, what motivates me? I just, I really like, I like being a lawyer. I like um, people and I like to be out there and I like to try to shake things up. I mean, that's, that's the truth. Um, whatever I can do to be a little bit different. Um, and just, I just wanted to go back and I didn't fully answer one of your questions, which is what I was most proud of. Let's hear it. So the second thing is, and I'm just going to pitch now for the law society, the coach and advisor network. Right. So Peter Wardle and I were co-chairs and that, that's, um, so that's something that we were very, um, very neck deep in in the details in creating. Is um, this essentially like a mentorship program? It is. Okay. So it's a coaching and advisor program. So there's two different options. If you needed a mentor, you could call up and be matched with somebody. And if it doesn't work out the first go round, they'll match you with somebody else. Or if you have um, a file or an issue specific issue that you just need to bounce something off of. You can call, and they will—they'll um, connect you with somebody in that area who can who can help you get through that and issue. And this program problem. exists right now. It exists right now. It's called the Coach and Advisor Network. Okay. And it's on the Law Society's website. And um, I urge all of you out there to volunteer as coaches and advisors, or if you're in need of some assistance. And if it, it doesn't matter if you're in a big firm or if you're out on your own, or if you're in a small firm, or if you're in Kenora or in downtown Toronto, you can call and, and get some guidance. And this is this is to do with your practice, with file-specific issues. Um, there are rules built around protecting um, 
confidentiality, of course, mm-hmm. of your clients. But it's an amazing program, and I urge everybody to get involved one way or another. So what would you Google to find it, aside from your email address? <laughs> I apologize in advance now. You're going to get a million emails. No, so. it's good. I, I'm happy to do that. Okay. Um, I would Just Google Coach and Advisor Network. Okay. And it's um, it'll it'll pop up. It has its own dedicated website, and there's a there's a website um, as part of the Law Society of Ontario's website as well. Is there um, a, a limit on how long you've been practicing for for you to be eligible as um, a mentor or mentee, or is it something that is kind of open to everybody? I don't want to get this wrong. There is a limit mm-hmm. for both the advisors and the coaches. It may be five years, but I, I don't want to get that wrong. So we'll have to check the website. But what you're describing is virtually any problem that comes up, whether it's business or let's say as a young criminal practitioner or immigration lawyer, you say, I'm running into this difficult problem. This is a specialized program that they can reach out to. Exactly. Okay. Well, that's good to know. See, I didn't learn something new every day. This is great. I should know this, but I, I didn't. So. No, it just it tells me that we have to do better with our communications. So I will be emailing the Law Society and letting them know. Tell me a little bit about your um, uh, the lessons you've learned during your articles. In particular, some of the lessons that have carried with you to today, both in your practice and in life and just motivation. So I had I had a terrific articling experience at Bruskin and Parr. Amazing people there. I just I knew pretty early on that I didn't want to prosecute trademarks and patent applications. And during my articling, we had one um, one large piece of litigation, um, which was the big Lego case. If uh, if we Google that, I think it went all the way to Supreme Court. Um, so I worked on that, and that's that's when I realized that, okay, I, I want to do litigation. And BNP, at the time, didn't have a very large uh, litigation department. So I, um, I also wanted to, I was quite young when I was called to the bar, and when I was articling, I had only done two years of undergrad. Um, and you know, I, I now I'll admit that I was, I was very young and immature at the time, and I wanted to go back to Windsor, which is where I was from. And where my family was, and my most of my friends were. Um, so I, I I let BNP know that I would not be returning, and um, but I really liked litigation. And did they have any advice for me? And they were the lawyers I worked with at at BNP were amazing. They said we're working with Harvey Strasberg on this case. Can we call him and try to set up an interview? And I said absolutely. So that led me to work at Harvey's firm, and. Quite honestly, I've, I'm one of the luckiest people I know in that I got to learn under Harvey and Bill Sasso. So I worked with Bill Sasso on commercial litigation matters and with Harvey on class actions. And I, I can't think of two better people to learn under in those two areas. Um, but saying that, when I learned the most was when Harvey came into my office one day and said, here's a file. There's an inquiry that starts in two weeks. You're gonna go do it. <laughs> so it was the upper wash inquiry. Oh my gosh! And I was I was a second or third year lawyer. I knew nothing. I, I I knew nothing from the sense of being responsible for a file on my own. So I thought, okay, well, I guess I'm I guess I'm gonna figure this out. And I did. And and it was an amazing learning experience. The quality of counsel there were bar to none. There was Mark Sandler 
um, Ian Rowland, Derry Miller was commission counsel. Um, everybody there was just um, amazing. And Julian Falconer mm-hmm. was my table mate and became my mentor for that inquiry. He was, it wasn't just me, there was a group of us, more junior lawyers, who were sort of plopped into Forest, Ontario to do this inquiry. And um, those senior lawyers, Took every took all of us under their wings right. and were there to to assist us. So that is really when I learned all I needed to know about litigation, watching them and and doing it on my own. It's like a, a quick crash course with leaving with your master's degree in litigation around all these people. Absolutely, I, I wouldn't change that experience for anything. Is there one um, memory in particular that stands out during the April wash that you thought was somewhat of a litigation epiphany or just something that's perhaps a <laughs> something that's carried with you to today? Speaking, I can speak about it now because um, I think I'm over it. Um, my client was eviscerated in cross-examination oh, by Julian Falconer. <laughs> so when you do a podcast with Julian, you should ask him about that. <laughs> I will. I certainly will. Yeah. Okay. I, 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 I'll get all the details on that. You, like some of the other lawyers on the podcast, are very active in social media. Um, you know, you have a Twitter account. I notice with uh, Sparktown and some other things, you're active on Instagram. And... Um, I mean, I love it. I, I think it's great. Um, but I don't know if you found the same thing, but when I speak to other lawyers, there's a real um, reluctance to engage in social media. So what would you say to lawyers um, that are unwilling to start this process or see it as having no value to their particular practice? I enjoy it. I enjoy reading your tweets. I, you know, I, I personally haven't seen any benefit from it in the sense of of clients coming in because they saw a tweet I you know sure right I haven't seen that but I what I enjoy about it is engaging with other lawyers on on Twitter Mm -hmm. um, or Instagram and meeting people I otherwise wouldn't have met Mm -hmm. Um, you know there's I've made a couple of friends in the first place we met was Twitter and then I've seen them at at an event and it's been like oh you follow me, I follow you. <laughs> right. um, you know, that was a really great, great tweet you you tweeted a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I've enjoyed that aspect of it is meeting people I otherwise wouldn't have met. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's good to get out there and mm-hmm. interact with people in the public sphere like that with other lawyers and other law firms. Um, but like I said, I haven't seen any benefit from a client perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, it is where I get all my news these days. I mean, Twitter really is the first place to get breaking news. And um, I just I just really enjoy it. Have you had um, any issues arise with as you know using your your venture perspective? Um, obviously, there's a lot of ethical concerns with social media. Uh, has this become more of a focus as of late within the law society to ensure that people, you know, don't overstep things and is there some lessons? Are there some lessons that you would want to pass on to younger lawyers who are active on social media, and what to be careful of, and what the law society is looking at? Yeah, so I th- I think it's important for all lawyers, young lawyers, anybody new to social media, to read the advertising and marketing rules mm-hmm. in the rules of professional conduct. Um, there's some specific rules, and in the commentary, there's specific examples of things you shouldn't be saying. So you shouldn't be tweeting out, I'm the best lawyer in Canada. That could get you into trouble. 
you shouldn't be tweeting out details of um, how much money you just got for you know for a client in whatever win. Um, those things are are seen as as not appropriate. Um, you have to be careful about revealing confidential information about clients. Um, so when you're boasting about a case, just be careful that you're only boasting about things that are in the public sphere. Um, the other thing I would say is if you have an employee, a staff person managing your account, make sure they're aware of the rules as well because you're responsible for whatever they do. Right. That's that's really good advice because I think that's easy to get lost in that. You hand off your social media account to employee or worse, a marketing company exactly. that really have no uh, knowledge or concern for your <laughs> obligations and uh, that could be a big problem. Um, one question I ask a lot of our guests, um, and I'll ask you as well, but I, I, because you have expertise in other areas, because it's not just litigation, you have perspective as a bencher, you have perspective as a business person. Um, is there an, an inscription that you would want on your desk to read on a day-to-day that, that you think helps guide you, whether it's in litigation or business or just life management, I guess you could say? So the best piece of advice that I ever received, and it was from a, it was from a lawyer on the other side of a case of a trial I did as a young lawyer, um, is act like you belong, and I think that's applicable in every situation. So, actually, I think he went on. I think he said, "Act like you belong," because everybody else in the room is doing that. <laughs> um, I do worry sometimes that, oh, this is the day that they're going to realize I have no idea what I'm doing. And I think a lot of us think that way. I think everyone in the room thinks right. that all the time, <laughs> right? So everyone's Ooh, looking today around. today's the day. <laughs> right. Yeah. But no, I, that's gotten me, that's gotten me far. I do, I think about that line a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever I'm nervous about something, it's like, okay, just act like you belong. <laughs> and it, it works. Right. I mean, I think it's, I think it's worked. Right. Sure. So that's the, that's the line I would keep on my desk. It's like, um, even selecting wine, just confidently point. Another question I ask is, is there one thing, whether it's an item, um, or a ritual that you just can't go to court without something in your briefcase or ritual beforehand? So it's a little bit embarrassing. And I, I, I'm not sure I should. It might lead to an investigation into my mental health. But what I do when I I know I have to be in court is I set my alarm on my iPhone. There's a plug for iPhones at 511, 611 and 711 to make sure I get up in time for court. Like like one of those is going to go off. (laughs) I don't know why it has to be 11, but it, it does. So that's that's my ritual. I like it. It's kind of like you, you're gradually getting more and more intense towards exactly. the litigation, right? You're, you're like, oh, this is the last one. I really need to wake up now. I like that. What about coming down from litigation? Do you Is there a particular restaurant that you love going to or anything that you just enjoy winding down from a day of a intense cross-examination or, as you say, evisceration of your client? Yeah, when my clients are eviscerated. <laughs> um I'm pretty good at compartmentalizing my clients' cases, so I try not to get wrapped up emotionally. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they're really, the coming down is mostly from the high of being in court, and I do get that that buzz, that high, when you're in court all day. So, I mean, generally, and it's not a habit or anything, it might be a habit, but it's not something I do intentionally. Whoever's working on the case with me, we all go somewhere 
and have a round of drinks or five and talk about the day and mm-hmm. the case. And mm-hmm. so that's basically the ritual. Mm-hmm. And I think that's pretty common in our in our profession. Absolutely. And and probably what's better now is with Spark, there's even more of that cohesion where you can come back to the office and and not just um, talk as you would in any law firm, but talk within the purpose and culture of your firm as well. Exactly. And you saw our very fully stocked wine fridge. I certainly did. And and the coffee machine is uh, is, is on the way, a very high-end one. Very exciting. All the essential <laughs> tools. Um, another thing I want to talk to you about is um, the importance of mentorship and leadership uh, for women in the profession. Um, not only are you a leader to young lawyers, but also um, to women lawyers. So what, if anything, can be done to improve um, more women lawyers as leaders like yourself in the profession? I think there are a number of women lawyers who are leaders in our profession. And the problem is the men at the table making room for the women. That's, right. I think, where the disconnect is. I think... Um, for whatever reason, when people think of, and I just saw something about this on Twitter the other day, when people think of what a leader is, they automatically think of a man. So I think we need to do more to um, make room for women at the table and encourage women to take leadership roles so that a woman's face is the face that you know your two-year-old daughter thinks of when they think of what a leader is or mm-hmm. who a leader is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I think mentorship and women supporting women and men supporting women is incredibly important in our profession. I get emails and calls all the time from young lawyers, mostly females, who I don't know. Um, they just cold email or cold call me. And I always respond. I always meet with them. I'm always happy to hear um to hear their not always complaints, but their questions about what can I do to be better at what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually really enjoy meeting with them. So I encourage anybody to send me an email who um, who's looking for some guidance. And I've been lucky in my profession that people have been responsive to me when I've sought out the same. So it's almost like paying it forward and we have to keep it going. Jacqueline, what does a great day look like to you inside and outside of the courtroom? My perfect day is my client not being eviscerated in cross-examination. <laughs> no. Um, I'm sure that happens very rarely <laughs> these days. Um, I I really enjoy doing appeals. So my perfect day would be being in the court of appeal. Mm-hmm. A half a day would be ideal. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, that's sort of my perfect day in the courtroom. I, If you go on our website, in my little bio, it says that I've never been to the Supreme Court of Canada. I still have not. I've come close on a few leave applications. I still haven't had leave, but... That would be my, um, I would love to go to the Supreme Court of Canada and argue in front of that court. So that, I think, would be my perfect ideal day in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. Outside of that, I um, would love to wake up and wander out into a onto a beach somewhere. I mean, that's basically mm-hmm. the best day for me. Right. Yeah. Well, that sounds pretty good. Well, I'm sure both will come to you very shortly. Um, what about a really bad day? There's, you know, we as lawyers always have really bad days, whether it's because of a particularly difficult client or a case that we've lost. And I think these sorts of bad days can be particularly hard to get by as a lawyer just coming into the profession. What tricks have you learned over the years to try and get past that? You mentioned compartmentalization, but practically speaking, what does that mean? 
it, it just means removing the emotion from the case. I think it benefits your client as well. Mm -hmm. So if somebody comes to me and says, you know, I, I'm a shareholder, I've been wronged, I need to get my $15 million out of the company. I'm happy to do your case, but I won't get emotionally invested in you getting your $15 million mm -hmm. back. Mm -hmm. um, I'll do my best for you, but but I won't, I won't get into the down and dirty of it, like clients often like to go down that road. Um, so it's just about making sure you're objective with your clients files. I know people that do criminal law and family law, it's it's a different world because you do often get into the emotions of your clients and their their cases. I like to keep it on a strictly money level. We're just dealing with money. It's mm -hmm. not the end of the world. Like it's a it might be a lot of money or it might you know, it might not be a lot of money. But in the grand scheme of things, it's actually not what's important. Mm -hmm. So that's that's how I try to stay above the the emotions of it all. Is there something that um, you do to manage your um, what I suspect is a very busy schedule? How do you compartmentalize not just what you just described, but also your time so that you can manage clients, manage cases that are upcoming, and now all of your massive business responsibilities as well? I, yeah, I don't think there's any magic to it. I just sort of make it work. Mm -hmm. And on those days, I mean, listen, I have some incredibly long days. You're up in the office by seven, you're at the office, you're leaving at nine o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. But those don't happen every day. And I make sure they don't happen every day of the week, unless I'm in the middle of a trial, then it's it's a totally different world. Um, but you have to make time for, you have to make sure that you have downtime in your schedule. And, and I do that. I make sure that I have time to go to yoga or go for drinks with friends or whatever it is. Just I make sure I, I leave the office at the office. What would you say to a young lawyer um, and they don't feel fully equipped to start their own practice, but it's really their own only choice? Um, here you are as an accomplished lawyer, litigator, and also now someone who's recently started up a, a pretty complex business. What advice would you give to that young lawyer? Um, so in our profession, I think there's nothing more important than your network. And I think it's important to just put yourself out there and meet as many people as you possibly can, whether it's other young lawyers or more senior lawyers or even your professors from law school, just reaching out and staying in touch with people. Um, if they're, I just met with somebody the other day who, who wasn't hired back, he's called to the bar, he's trying to figure out what to do with his life now. And I said to him, well, maybe you should look at starting your own firm. I mean, that there's no shame in that. There seems to be this perception that um, newly called lawyers, if they're not hired back, are somehow lesser than their, their peers. And I don't think that's right. I think they should embrace it and, and don't be afraid. There's tons of people out there who are willing to help you along. I mean, including me and, and including you. I'm mm -hmm. sure you get mm -hmm. calls all the time from people. Um, and you're responsive to them. And the Law Society also will help you along. If you if you think you don't know what you're doing, call them and, and somebody will guide you through the process. Um, so I, I in, and by the end of the meeting, I think he started thinking about it and even said that he would reach out to a couple of his friends to maybe you know go into a firm or a business together or, or share space together. Um, 
but networks are, I think, the most important thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of my work comes from referrals from uh, from other lawyers. Um, so that that's that's my best advice: is just get out there and, and meet as many people, as many lawyers as you possibly can. Thank you so much for that, Jacqueline. It was a real pleasure um, interviewing you today in this beautiful new office that uh, you have, and uh, I look forward to seeing all of your future successes. Thanks, Sean. This was a lot of fun.